Hello and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by our deputy editor, Nick Bostock, to discuss some of the key news stories affecting general practice. Coming up, we'll be looking at the current state of the GP workforce and changes over the past year. We've just undertaken a major update of our GP workforce tracker, which we launched a year ago, and Nick's going to talk through some of the key findings from that work. We'll be talking about the uplift to the minimum wage that's due to happen in April and what that means for general practice, and discussing GP premises, in particular some of the problems relating to funding reaching practices when there are housing developments in their area. And following the recent Cabinet reshuffle, we'll be looking at the arrival of a new Secretary of State at the Department of Health and Social Care, and what this could mean in the months ahead. Our good news story today is about cervical cancer. First up, as I mentioned at the start of the podcast, we've just undertaken a major update of our GP Insight workforce tracker, which you can find on our website at gponline.com. We launched the tracker last year looking at a range of measures relating to the GP workforce in England, including patients per GP and the proportion of GPs who are partners, alongside data relating to workload and patient satisfaction. The tracker provides details of all these measures at both integrated care board and primary care network level and allows people to look at the data in interactive maps, tables and charts. So there's now data in that tracker for a full year, so you can also see how things have changed over that period. Nick, you've been looking at all this data. So first off, what is it telling us about patients per GP, which is obviously the key measure we've been looking at? In terms of the situation across England as a whole, based on figures from NHS Digital for September 2023, there are 2,300 patients per fully qualified full-time equivalent GP on average across the country. And that figure's increased by about 2.3% over the past year. And that change reflects a combination of a rise in the number of patients registered with GP practices and a decline at the same time in the number of fully qualified GPs. So there are more patients, fewer GPs, and as a result, over the past year, the number of patients each GP is responsible for on average has increased. Obviously, this has major implications in terms of patient safety and in terms of pressure for GPs and factors such as burnout and stress. In terms of safety, one of the things we've reported on this week is how the current level of patients per GP, this current level of 2,300 patients per fully qualified full-time equivalent GP, compares with what is considered a safe limit. The England Local Medical Committee's conference, which we're going to be at this week, has a debate listed in which GPs are going to call on the BMA to define the number of patients a full-time GP can manage safely. But a figure that some LMCs and other organisations have cited in the past, and this actually broadly lines up with the BMA's safe working guidance as a safe limit, is 1,800 patients per GP. That's a long way off where general practice is at the moment. GPs are currently responsible for 28% more patients each on average than that safe limit. Before we move on, you mentioned the LMC's conference there. That is actually due to happen on Thursday and Friday this week. So by the time people listen to this podcast, that conference will be well underway. So you'll be able to read some of the news from that event on our website at gponline.com. But coming back to the workforce tracker, obviously you've talked about the national picture there. But we know there is variation across the country. Not all areas are equal. What do we know about how things change from ICB to ICB? Variation across England is really significant in terms of the numbers of patients each full-time equivalent GP is caring for on average. Um, And that variation is actually growing. 
Um, so I'm just going to talk about variation between England's 42 integrated care board or ICB areas here. And these cover pretty large geographies, roughly three times the size of a local authority area on average. And even at this level, the variation in patients per GP is really significant. But clearly, if you go down to a more granular level, looking at sub-ICBs, PCNs, and even individual GP practices, and that's some of the stuff that the tables and charts in our tracker let you explore, the variation is far, far greater still. But at ICB level, the ICB with the most patients per fully qualified full-time equivalent GP now has 50% more patients per GP than the ICB with the lowest number. So Bedfordshire, Luton and Milton Keynes ICB has 2,824 patients per GP. That's the top end of the scale. And at the other end, Cornwall and the Isles of Scilly ICB has 1,878. And the 50% difference between those two is bigger than the gap between top and bottom last year. So 12 months ago, the gap was 43%. So at that time, it was already significant, but it's growing fast. It's worth noting here that up to a point, you'd expect variation between ICB areas because of differences in the populations they serve and differences in the areas they cover. So how rural or urban they are, for example. But I think the statistic that really gives the lie to the idea that this variation might be justified is the fact that among London's five ICBs, there's a 25% gap between the most and least underdoctored. So North West London ICB has 2,720 patients per fully qualified full-time equivalent GP, whereas South West London has 2,191. So it's, a, you know, it's about a 25% gap. And it, it's really hard to argue that that level of, of variation is justified by rurality, for example. You mentioned London there. So South East London, that was the ICB that has the fastest rising number of patients per GP. You spoke to an LMC lead from that area. What did he have to say about some of the reasons behind this? And did he have any thoughts on how to address it? As you mentioned, South East London ICB saw the largest increase in patients per GP between September 22 and September 2023 of any ICB in the country. In that area, it went up by 8.7% in just that one-year period, which is more than three times the national average increase. In South East London, the change was driven by a combination of a 1.6% rise in the patient population registered with GPs, which is about average, and a 6.7% drop in fully qualified full-time equivalent GPs, which is way above the national average change. So the GP I spoke to was Dr Sushanta Badra, who's the chair of Bexley LMC in South East London. And what he told me was that the practices in his area are really struggling to recruit and retain GPs because of a mix of heavy workload and underfunding. He said Bexley is relatively deprived. And as we know, the impact of deprivation on GP workload is something that's not reflected in the current funding formula for general practice. The RCGP said this year in its manifesto to save general practice that GP practices serving deprived areas tend to receive around 7% less funding for about 14% more patients. And Dr Badra said basically that GP practices in his patch often simply can't afford to pay the rates they need to attract GPs to work there. 
So he made an argument we've heard from other GPs fairly regularly that funding from the additional roles reimbursement scheme, the ARRS, should be available to support increasing numbers of GPs as well as other staff in general practice. He also said he was worried that inequality would increase in terms of GP provision across the country because in areas like Bexley, there are a number of older GPs who may not stay in work much longer and who at the moment he feels there's just no clear plan to replace. In terms of solutions, he said it's not really that complicated. He said working in general practice needs to be made attractive to newer GPs coming into the profession. And that means adequate remuneration, sorting out that problem with underfunding for areas like his. And then it's about tackling workload and bringing the number of patients GPs are having to see each day down towards the levels that are set out, for example, in the BMA's safe working advice. Are there any areas where the balance between patients and GPs are improving? There are actually quite a few areas where patients per fully qualified full-time equivalent GP decreased over the the past year. So whether, you know, that statistic's moving in the right direction. Around one in four ICBs, it's 10 of England's 42 integrated care board areas, saw patients per GP fall in the year to September 2023. And just to touch on the factors involved... Numbers of patients registered with GP practices increased in every ICB area by between about half a percent and two and a half percent. But in these 10 ICBs, GP numbers grew faster than patients. And in most of the areas where patients per GP decreased, the fall was less than one percent. So in many cases, this is largely about things not getting worse rather than a, a significant improvement in the balance between doctors and patients. We've also included some other figures in the table as well. Can you just talk through what they are? Yeah, so our GP Insight workforce tracker also gives some information on the proportion of GPs who are partners in each area and how that varies. It looks at patient satisfaction regionally and variations in that, and also at the proportion of the workforce aged over 55. And that, along with the numbers of partners, is an indicator of the sustainability of general practice in in any area of the country. And we've also looked at the number of appointments GP practices have delivered per patient over the past year in each ICB and how that varies. And there'll be more coverage on all of these points to come on GP Online over the coming weeks. So we've been talking here about all of this data at integrated care board level. But as I mentioned earlier, GP Insight also looks at all of this data at PCN level for every network in England. GP Online subscribers can access individual pages for each ICB, which looks at the data for that area in more detail and provides tables showing information for all of the PCNs in that area. So you can see how your network compares to others in your patch. Subscribers can also see our overall ICB ranking table, which shows how all of the ICBs compare to each other on all of the measures we've been discussing today. So you can find more information on all of that by clicking on the GP Insights section of our website. And we'll put a link to that in the notes for this episode. Moving on, this week the government announced a significant increase to the minimum wage from April next year, which could have a big impact on GP practices. Nick, the changes form part of the government's autumn statement this week. How much is the minimum wage set to increase by? From April next year, the minimum wage will rise by what the government says is its largest ever cash increase. The minimum wage will increase to £11.44 for all workers aged over 21. That's just under 10% up from the current £10.42 minimum for over 23s. And it's 12.4% up 
from the £10.18 rate for people aged 21 to 22 in the current financial year. So it's a really significant increase. And it comes after a period of rapid growth in the minimum wage, after a 9.7% rise to the main rate last year and a 6.6% increase the year before. Obviously, in a very broad context, it's a, it's a good thing that the minimum wage is being increased. But there are obviously some real concerns for GP practices that will obviously be facing rising wage bills as a result of this. What have GPs been saying about it? As you said, most people, including a lot of GPs, practice managers and so on, say they very much welcome the rise in the minimum wage. The BMA England GP Committee Chair, Dr Katie Bramall-Stainer, said this week that it was, of course, a good thing for workers benefiting from the increase. But the fear for practices is that the government will fail to pass on additional funding to cover the increased costs that this will create for practices' wage bills. Um, Some practices are saying that this increase in the minimum wage is going to add tens of thousands of pounds to their staff costs overall. And in previous years, the government simply hasn't provided additional funding to match these increases in wages that practices are obliged to pay. And that has meant that practices are losing out financially at a time when they're already incredibly stretched, as we know. There was an increase to the element of practice funding that's meant to cover staff pay this year, which was intended to allow practices to give all employed staff a 6% pay rise. But we know that the funding provided to practices simply wasn't enough for many of them to cover the cost of a 6% staff pay rise in full. And one factor in that is that this year, as I mentioned earlier, the minimum wage rose by 9.7%, which is well above the 6% uplift for staff costs. And the BMA GP committee says that on top of losing out because the pay award was underfunded, many practices are struggling with things like extreme inflation, the rise in utilities and running costs, issues such as service charge increases imposed by NHS property services. And then on top of that pressure to deliver cost of living pay increases for other staff and to match the the kind of increases that other employers locally may be awarding. We know that practice finances have been very constrained in the past couple of years because of all of those things you mentioned there. But clearly, this is obviously something that's going to be discussed and raised during contract negotiations for next year's GP contract. We know that those talks are currently underway in England for what we're expecting to be a one-year deal from April 2024. What's the BMA had to say about that? Has it said anything about that? General practices currently in the final year of the five-year contract that started in 2019. And in recent years, when costs have risen, the government has often said, well, the contract's fixed and it can't be changed. And for next year, there are no such constraints. So the government won't have that argument to fall back on if it chooses not to deliver funding to meet the extra costs practices face. We know that there's unlikely to be a great deal of change in the 2024-25 GP contract. But if targets and so on largely stand still, that won't be good enough from a funding point of view, because particularly with factors like this minimum wage increase adding to cost pressures. If the government chooses not to support practices with these costs, the BMA is worried that practices will have no choice but to cut back on staff or ultimately even go out of business if they're already really close to the wire financially. So the BMA GP committee chair for England said this week that the government's got to make sure that general practice has the funding it needs to keep surgeries functioning with enough staff to continue maintaining patient care. 
Next up, we're talking about premises, which we know is a massive problem in general practice. We're going to talk about the wider issues to do with premises in a minute. But firstly, we're going to look at a very specific problem that causes a huge challenge for many practices, and that's related to new housing developments. Obviously, when a major new housing development is built, that means more people in a local area who will need to register with a GP as well as access a host of other public services. Nick, there are rules around funding for local infrastructure, including primary care services, that local authorities are supposed to levy on housing developers, aren't there? What are these? There are a couple of key mechanisms intended to generate funding that can go towards associated infrastructure that's needed alongside development projects. Section 106 agreements are legal agreements with developers that councils can use to claim funding when developments go ahead. And it's possible to use this funding to build new GP premises or to expand existing premises, for example. The other mechanism available is something called a Community Infrastructure Levy, or CIL. And that effectively allows local authorities to claim funding in proportion to the size of a development taking place. To be clear, these funding arrangements aren't only for general practice, but they can be used to support general practice. The problem is that councils often don't seem to be using these tools at all. And as a result, when development expands housing in an area, there isn't a corresponding growth in other infrastructure, including GP facilities. So a report by the think tank Reform a few years ago found that only around a third of councils had used these mechanisms to claim funding for healthcare infrastructure improvements between 2013 and 2019. And even in some of the areas with the most development, there were no Section 106 agreements reported, for example. The reason we're talking about this on the podcast today is that you wrote a story last week about a discussion in Parliament about this funding and delays in money reaching GP premises projects, which involved the Chancellor and former Health and Social Care Secretary Jeremy Hunt. What was that all about? In a debate in Parliament this month, the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, admitted it takes too long for money from housing developments to reach GP premises projects. And he promised to investigate what's going on. The promise to look into why there hasn't been the investment in GP premises development that there should have been alongside housing development came after another Conservative MP, Andrew Sellers, told the House of Commons that primary care capital allocation had pulled the short straw for decades. He said that there just hadn't been enough developer contributions to deliver the sorts of expansions in primary care premises needed when new homes are built. He pointed to one development of 6,000 and another of 8,000 homes in his area. And he said that based on a figure the NHS uses of 2.6 residents per property... That means an extra 36,000 residents, all of whom will obviously need GP services. I suppose the positive factor here is that at least this issue is now attracting some attention at the top of government. But there needs to be some intervention rapidly because many GPs are operating in dilapidated premises and caring for far too many patients at a time when demand is at a record level. All of this does actually cause some very real problems for practices, doesn't it? I mean, I was at an event recently and I heard a couple of GPs raise this issue in a discussion about some of the challenges that new house building was causing them. One of those GPs was talking about huge numbers of people moving into their area because of new building developments. I mean, this was a fairly rural area. Because of that, obviously, there was a limited number of practices that all these new residents could register with. 
So it's going to cause a significant issue for the practices involved unless they have more space to expand into to provide additional staff. And these practices effectively made up one PCN because of the geography of that area, which presented its own challenges as well. You've spoken to the BMA about some of the problems this causes for GP practices. What did they have to say? So David Wrigley, the deputy chair of GPC England, the GP committee for England, said that the delay in housing development capital reaching NHS primary care services, including GP premises, was widespread. And he said that patient demand is skyrocketing, but he said it's made 10 times worse when there aren't enough GP surgeries to go around. And he said that when that happens, basically, as we've seen, patients face longer waits for care, service standards slip, and GPs are more likely to burn out. He said that it has to come into the conversation that the existing state of GP premises needs to improve. He said many practices are no longer fit for purpose. Waiting rooms are too small. There often aren't enough consulting rooms. That's an issue that's been exacerbated by the arrival of additional roles reimbursement staff. He said that it's just essential that GP surgery requirements are considered when housing developments go ahead and they've got to be funded, built promptly and existing ones improved and expanded where needed. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because if we're talking about some public services like schools, for example, there are only a set number of places each year in schools. So when they're full, they're full. And unfortunately, that means people often have travel much further than they would like to take their children to school. But we don't think about it like that for general practice, do we? You know, practices are expected to simply take on all these additional people. And as you say, that's really very difficult if they don't have the space to provide the services or appointments that extra patients will inevitably require. You know, you mentioned Jeremy Hunt there. Earlier this week, the RCGP called on Hunt to provide £2 billion investment in primary care premises for general practice as part of the autumn statement, which he clearly didn't. The RCGP said this week that that investment was vital to address inadequate and unsafe GP premises infrastructure, much like David Wrigley was talking about there, as you mentioned. You mentioned the additional roles reimbursement scheme. It is important to mention this. NHS England is very keen to tell us as often as possible that there are now 31,000 additional staff working in general practice compared with 2019. The vast majority of them will be employed under the additional roles reimbursement scheme. But there really hasn't been any investment in premises over that time or for several years before that, in fact, to accommodate these people and also to accommodate the growing numbers of patients that we were talking about at the start of the podcast, Nick. I think every practice is familiar with room planning and juggling people around to make sure they can get everyone in the building that they need there at any one time. Planning all of that takes up a huge amount of practice managers' time each month, which could clearly be better spent on other things. And at the minute, we're only talking about the staff we already have. We also need to be thinking about the needs of primary care in the future. How on earth are we going to fit in all these extra staff envisaged by the NHS Workforce Plan? That plan also talks about making sure every foundation doctor spends some time in general practice and a move towards GP registrars spending all three years of their training in general practice. Clearly, there's no way there's the space to accommodate any of that at the minute. I mean, I suppose to be fair to the workforce plan itself, you know, that acknowledges that premises will have to be addressed to deliver on those promises. We've also seen other big plans from NHS England in the past highlight that the primary care estate needs funding and improvement. The most recent of those was the fuller stock take, which set out how to better integrate primary care services and ensure they're working together more effectively as part of an integrated care system. So obviously NHS England recognises this is an issue, but really the board is very much in the government's court in terms of releasing the funding that's needed to invest in new primary care infrastructure. 
Since Nick and I last spoke on the podcast, there's been some major changes at the Department of Health and Social Care. As part of Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's reshuffle, Steve Barclay found himself moved on from the DHSC to the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. And Victoria Atkins, who was previously Financial Secretary to the Treasury, was promoted to the Cabinet as the new Health and Social Care Secretary. So, Nick, what do we know about Victoria Atkins? Victoria Atkins is the MP for Louth and Horncastle in Lincolnshire. She says she's a bit northern and a bit southern. She was born in London, but educated in Blackpool. And she said that in school she could hear the screams from the Blackpool Pleasure Beach while she was in lessons. She's been an MP for eight years, so her rise to the position of Health and Social Care Secretary has has been pretty swift. She was a criminal barrister before going into politics, so she's not a career politician. And she'd held a number of junior ministerial positions, the first of which she took up about six years ago before becoming Health and Social Care Secretary. Although none of the junior ministerial roles she's held have been in the Department of Health, Victoria Atkins says on her website that she's been campaigning for better health and social care in her area. And she has specifically mentioned the need for more GPs. Because she's from Lincolnshire, she should be well aware of some of the pressures facing general practice. So the ICB her constituency is in has a high number of patients per GP, as well as an ageing GP workforce and relatively high levels of demand. So perhaps you'll be more conscious of some of the pressures facing general practice than MPs elsewhere might be. She gave a very brief video message to the NHS Providers Conference on her second day in post. Clearly, it was probably a bit too soon for a major speech. But in that message, she described herself as an optimist uh, and she suggested that she believed that the Department of Health and the NHS could work together to overcome many of the challenges that the health service currently faces. And, and there are many challenges. She said she was committed to getting around the table for talks on industrial action. And clearly, I think everyone in the NHS will be hoping there can be some sort of resolution on the junior doctors and consultant strikes in England, uh, you know, something that will also head off potential strikes by specialty and associate specialist doctors, which uh, they're being balloted on at the minute. Victoria Atkins, she said she wanted to see a fair and reasonable resolution to the current industrial action. Obviously, what that means remains to be seen. But she does take over at a really tricky time, doesn't she? I mean, we're heading into winter now, which looks like it's going to be another difficult winter for the NHS. It seems highly likely that we're going to see stories of ambulances queuing outside hospitals, problems with discharge, patients being treated in corridors. It it doesn't really feel like enough has changed since last winter to avoid those sorts of problems again. So that's obviously going to be a real challenge for her. We also know that NHS England has been charged with saving huge sums of money to cover shortfalls in its budget. Obviously, all of that means very difficult decisions ahead for local NHS systems and senior managers. It means patients are really quite unlikely to see any major improvements in NHS services from their point of view. So that's another real challenge. Worth mentioning very briefly, there's also other changes in the Department of Health and Social Care following the resignation of former junior minister Neil O'Brien, who was in charge of primary care, and former Minister of State Will Quince, who oversaw secondary care. They resigned in the midst of that reshuffle. So they are being replaced by Andrea Ledsom and Andrew Stevenson. Andrea Ledsom is the MP for South Northamptonshire. Her name will probably be really familiar to some listeners. She was a former leadership challenger early in the process when Theresa May became leader of the Conservative Party and Prime Minister. 
But she also has a lot of experience at cabinet level. She's a former Secretary of State for Business and a former Secretary of State at DEFRA. And she's been the leader of the House of Commons and served in the Treasury. Andrew Stevenson, he's the Conservative MP for Pendle and he's been made Minister of State. He also has a pretty extensive track record in junior ministerial roles. Most recently, he was a government whip, but he's also had roles in the Department for Leveling Up, the Cabinet Office, the Department for Transport and the Foreign Office. So the Department of Health and Social Care has yet to confirm which briefs each of them will be responsible, but it is quite likely, I would imagine, that one of them will end up overseeing what goes on in primary care. And whoever that is will be the minister who will be having regular meetings with people like the BMA GP Committee Chair, Dr Katie Bramlstainer, and the RCGP Chair, Professor Camilla Hawthorne. Before we go, we've just got time for our good news story this week, which is about cervical cancer. Last week, NHS England announced a new pledge to eliminate cervical cancer by 2040 through a combination of maximising HPV vaccination and increasing cervical screening uptake. The World Health Organisation considers cervical cancer to be eliminated when the incidence rate is lower than four per 100,000 women and NHS England clearly thinks it can reach that target. As part of its plans to boost cervical screening, NHS England will be trialling self-sampling where women can undertake HPV home testing to decide whether or not it should be introduced as part of the national screening programme. Currently, only around a third of women invited for screening take up the offer, so it's hoped that an initiative like this could help boost uptake. The announcement about all of this also revealed that the NHS app is set to expand to allow people to view their full vaccination record, receive booking invitation alerts and book appointments for jabs for all 15 routine vaccinations, not just HPV. England's not the only country to pledge to eliminate cervical cancer. The World Health Organization has a target to eliminate the disease globally by the end of the century, which would prevent the deaths of millions of women. HPV vaccination in particular has been a real public health success story. The challenge for NHS England's ambition will clearly be around boosting screening rates, but this is clearly an opportunity to eradicate a form of cancer, which would be an amazing achievement. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening and thanks so much to Nick. I'm back next week when I'll be talking to Dr. Catherine Bell and Dr. Becky Aykroyd about neurodiversity in the medical profession and how practices can better support doctors and staff who are neurodiverse. So please do join me then. In the meantime, you can keep up to date with all the latest news affecting general practice on our website at gponline.com. <laughs>